0: Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're back there this week. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn quickly. I'm going to do the same thing. I just realized my my Bible was marked for uh, something else as it was. So we're finishing this week, as most of you know, our series on the Holy Spirit, um, and then back into the Gospel of John. But uh, last week we looked at all of chapter 14, we've read all of chapter 14 um, last week. This this morning we're actually just going to look at verses 1 through 5, and then 26 through 32 we made a pass last week looking particularly at the focus of the gift of tongues. Today we're talking about the gift of prophecy. So let's look there together, and I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand just out of reverence for God's Word and attentiveness to His voice in it. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 14 and then 26 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. In verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. As always, for your word, it is always fresh. It is always living and active and powerful. And we open it with the expectation that not that it just has good and helpful information, but, Lord, that you have something to say to us in it. And so once again, we open our ears and our hearts And pray that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and our good. God, would you move me out of the way and use my voice as your vessel for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, just as a quick recap, um, the church at Corinth had written to Paul, And had asked him for some guidance. There were a number of problems going on there that they reported to him and questions they had and so forth. And Paul had also heard of concerns and problems and so forth from other people. And so he wrote this letter to address those in the opening six chapters. Really, those things that he's heard secondhand from other people. And then beginning in chapter 7, addressing the matters about which they wrote to him. One of those was about spiritual gifts. So he's answering their questions and concerns here. The things he addresses, in other words, are uh, raised by them. And part of what we infer from that and from what we read here is that Corinth was a mess. And their worship gatherings seemed to have been really something of a circus. Uh, there There were people... Lots of people speaking in tongues simultaneously. Um, You know, others had things they wanted to share. But it was just all being done in a way that was confusing and disorderly. And that's what Paul is speaking to, to provide some correction and instruction. And I'll I'll say again, uh, just to really underscore this fact, in case uh, somebody was absent one week that comes back another week. But just so you get the point... That, that Corinth is not the model church of how we ought to worship. You know, he's, he's speaking to, in light of things as they are there, here's how um, this can be done in a way that is orderly and edifying to the body and glorifying to God, or ways in which we can be open to the Spirit without quenching the Spirit and yet uh, without being um, completely, again, uh, disorderly and... Um, confusing and disturbing to people. So he's, he speaks uh, this whole message to, to those kinds of issues. And last week, as I said, we focused on the gift of tongues. And you may remember, we said that um, tongues is a prayer or praise to God in language, spiritual or human, not learned or understood even by the individual speaking, that it edifies primarily the individual not the church and therefore it's really best suited for personal use in private settings it's not primarily for gathered worship but it's not forbidden in gathered worship and so when uh tongues are spoken in uh assemblies there were some guidance about how that was to be done in an orderly fashion and uh Having said, there's a lot of uh, em- emphasis on that in this chapter. And then he uh, is also speaking to prophecy as the better, uh, s- sort of superior gift in a gathered setting. It is more profitable in an assembly because everyone can understand that. And so we're going to look this morning at the gift of prophecy. And I want to consider the nature of prophecy the exercise of prophecy, and then the evaluation of prophecy. And I'm going to try to get um, practical on some levels. There is so much that could be said here. I don't know if you ever stopped to imagine what it would be like being me. But, but the, you know there, there are lots of messages where there's always an editing part to a sermon, but there's a, a lot of the process is deciding what not to say. You know, because you just can't say it all. And there is so much here. Uh, one of the things, um, uh, by the way, is sort of a footnote that I've written for myself just about what he addresses about women speaking in the assembly. Um, and We read that last week, and I'm going to try to address that in the briefest of ways. But there's so much that could be said um, that I'm not going to say, but I'm going I'm to try to cover what is helpful, particularly in sort of pointing us forward in some practical ways. So, first of all, the nature of prophecy. And I'll just offer this definition. This is from a uh, theologian named Wayne Grudem. But he says that prophecy is speaking forth in human words something that God has brought spontaneously to mind. Speaking forth in human words, something that God has brought spontaneously to mind. Now, I'm going to try to unpack and and highlight some things that become relevant to this discussion. They may or may not be relevant to most people here in our congregation. Most people, for most people, this is kind of familiar territory. and and comfortable territory, to be talking about prophecy as a spiritual gift that's still relevant today and so forth. But knowing at at any time there are those for whom that's not the case and who immediately, you know, have questions in their mind, and good questions, by the way. There's a reason why this remains controversial in every generation. There's a reason why this chapter stirs up... uh, you know, about as much debate as any single chapter in the New Testament probably. Man, there are good questions that deserve to be asked. But anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address some of that but not go uh, really deep. But so I mention the, even the definition of prophecy partly because the Bible doesn't define it. The New Testament doesn't define it. And it, it speaks of prophecy um, as if people understand what he's talking about, and this is actually the case in a lot of ways for the epistles in particular in in the New Testament, that it is like walking up on a conversation between two people, Uh, the conversation's already been going on, they know what they're talking about, and you may or may not, you've probably had that experience before, right? And sometimes, like, you're totally lost, There's an inside joke, and you are not inside, you know? And other times, you might walk up, they're talking about something as plainly as anybody could, and it just makes sense, and you know the context, the subject of what they're talking about, and so on. And so as we read the New Testament epistles, epistles, we kind of have this sort of experience to greater or lesser degrees And there are a number of ways in which we sort of walk into a conversation where Paul is writing to people about something as if they just know fully what he's talking about. An example would be the way the church is governed, okay? He speaks about um, elders and overseers and deacons and different kinds of ways about the way church is governed. He never outlines, here's the way you need to organize your church. Because he's writing to people who are already part of the church. They already know how the church is organized. Does that make sense? And so there, there are different ways in which that happens. And, and uh, an example here is the gift of prophecy. He's speaking of prophecy, but he doesn't define prophecy. That's part of our problem. But another part of the problem is that you know, the people have offered other um, definitions of it, and particularly those who don't believe in kind of the supernatural nature of it as being still an abiding gift in our day, and they would say prophecy either was a gift, but it's no longer operative, or prophecy is really just the same thing as preaching. Maybe you've heard that before, that essentially preaching today is sort of the substitute for um, prophecy in the first century. What I would say, and I think the way the New Testament talks about it, is that's not quite an adequate understanding of what prophecy is. And so this definition is as good as one is, that I could find from Wayne Grudem. Uh, he's one I would commend to you, by the way, if, you're, if you would be interested in reading deep. Uh, he has a systematic theology that's, you know, I don't know, 12 or 1400 pages long. And uh, the chapter on the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts is much shorter than that, though, if you wanted to read it. But anyway, but speaking forth in human words, something that God has brought spontaneously to mind. So a couple of other highlights about that from right here in this uh, chapter we just read. Prophecy is an especially desirable spiritual gift. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Don't just tolerate them. Don't just be open to them, but hope they don't ever show up. (laughs) Uh, Earnestly desire them, especially that you may prophesy, he says. It's especially desirable. The other thing he says is that prophecy builds up, encourages, and comforts the congregation. In verse 3, that is part of the nature of New Testament prophecy. This is not just a word that, that God has brought spontaneously to mind that someone shares, but a word that would encourage Build up and comfort. Um, it does not carry authority equal to the Scripture. This is one of the real snags and points of disagreement, and you know, start of, sort of a stumbling block or whatever, saying that prophecy uh, in the New Testament is like the prophets of uh, of the Old Testament speaking the word of God, and and so if if somebody prophesies, that has the same weight or authority as Scripture. Again, there's a whole discussion and debate about such things, and I can't go into the whole discussion about anything uh, in this message. I'm just sort of touching um, on some key points or observations, but uh, what I would say in brief is that in the New Testament, the apostles were the ones who had the authority to speak the very words of God on behalf of God, who wrote the scriptures for us, and so forth. Uh, The word prophecy was used in the uh, Greco-Roman world, just in in this first century world, even in pagan circles. In fact, we even find an example. That is to say, it's spoken of people who aren't even Jews or Christians, that there there are people who, the word prophecy, in other words, just had this sort of a broader meaning than that, even in Titus 1.12, where Paul refers to Cretan prophets, pagan prophets. Prophets, just speaking oracles of some sort. Now, they've received them either out of their own head or from uh, some evil spirit or whatever the case may be. But the, the point is simply to say, um, we don't need to try to equate a prophecy with being an inerrant word from God that is somehow equivalent scripture in its authority a a person can because it is a human report of something God has brought spontaneously to mind the human can get it wrong and uh, a a sort of example of this in the New Testament I wish I could really spend a little bit more time here but 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 time is precious here and I'm already uh, managing it poorly I can tell uh, not, not, to, not to frighten you with that, but I sort of feel like I'm already behind here. But what I would point to is there's in Acts chapter 20 and 21, you may remember this story when, when Paul is actually getting ready to go to Jerusalem. He's finishing his third missionary journey, and he's going to Jerusalem. And he says in, in, uh, in chapter 20 that uh, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit Not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He he says he's constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Doesn't know what's going to happen, but he expects imprisonment everywhere he goes. And then in chapter twenty-one, verse four, he sought out some disciples um, who were there where he uh, rendezvoused, and through the Spirit, they were telling him, "Don't go to Jerusalem." He's constrained by the Spirit to go. They, through the Spirit, are telling him, don't go. And then Agabus, a prophet down later in verse 21, just in verses 10 through 12, um, prophesies to him and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. He he took Paul's belt and bound his hands and feet. And he says, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he heard this, we and when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. This prophet says, here's what's going to happen to the person who goes to Jerusalem him. The Jews will turn you over to the Gentiles. Well, Paul's going to Jerusalem, others are saying don't go to Jerusalem. And even the the, the specific details of that prophecy of Agabus weren't exactly the way things transpired because the Jews didn't turn him over to the Gentiles. The Jews tried to kill him. You can go back and read that, um, the way that unfolds in the book of Acts, but the the Jews are actually trying to kill him. The, The Roman authorities rescue him by arresting him. They actually arrest him in order to save him, and the point being, um, the, the the particular details of that are not um, exactly right. Even that he is a prophet, and that is a word from the Lord about what's getting ready to transpire. If Paul thought prophecy was equal to the authority of the Word of God, do you think Paul would have disregarded it and gone anyway? No, Paul himself was evaluating, testing that word to see whether that sort of agrees with what he's hearing from the Holy Spirit himself and making a decision otherwise. So it's, uh, all of that is to say, is really to uh, probably blur an issue <laughs> that you didn't know you had any question about before you came in here anyway, but, but, but that you can have a spontaneous word brought to mind by the Lord, it's reported by a human, that's prophecy. And because it's reported by a human, it, it might be inaccurate. If that were not the case, the, the, the command for us to test prophecy, to weigh prophecy, would be pointless. There would be nothing to test. There would be nothing, you wouldn't just hold fast To what is good. Anyway, so that's the nature of prophecy, Uh, uh, speaking forth in human words, something God has brought spontaneously to the mind. Number two, the exercise of prophecy. I'm gonna try to accelerate here uh, in my pacing, but it should be orderly, as it says down in verse uh, 29 orderly, limited to two or three. It should be spoken so that everyone could hear. Right. If, it, if a word of prophecy is supposed to um, edify the whole congregation, it should be spoken so that, in a way that everybody can hear. That's a bit of a practical matter, because if you are in a small assembly of 25 people, it's much easier for somebody to speak in a way that 25 people hear. If you are in an assembly of 2,500 people. That would not be the case if somebody just started speaking, right? So I'm just saying it's a, that's a practical matter. How that actually translates in a particular context may, may vary, but the principle would be it ought to be spoken so that everyone can hear. It ought to be spoken, thirdly, in a way um, that the word can be evaluated. This is what we're supposed to, and I'll get to, to the evaluation of it in point number three here in a minute. But if the word, if a word of prophecy is to be tested or weighed, then however that word is brought to the congregation, and whatever happens in response to that word, um, has to sort of provide for in some way, in some practical way, an evaluation of that. So, for example, it may be wise, uh, as a congregation uh, opens up to the exercise of that, for there to be an elder or pastor, or some other trusted uh, leader who kind of screens the speaker. That there's there's a process, and churches will get into a routine where they they have a way for this to be done. The person knows who they should go to and say, uh, "I believe I have a word from the Lord," and they, and 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 that, and that person, that leader, could sort of screen that to see. Uh, do I discern that that is a word from the Lord? Does it seem like it's a word from the Lord for our whole congregation? Is it a word from the Lord for our whole congregation right now? And that might be a way, in other words, for that to be done uh, where that, that could then be brought. There's a way for that to be brought to the whole congregation. But it's, it's, it, there's already sort of a, somewhat of a front-end evaluation of the word that happens. And then there's some way in which that can be done in an orderly way the whole congregation can hear. It probably involves a microphone somewhere rather than somebody just speaking uh, out of the back. But it's just an example of a, w- the kind of practical uh, implications of that. But, but regardless of the particulars, it ought to be spoken so everyone can hear, spoken in an orderly way, in a way that it could be evaluated. I would say another practical um, Implication of that is that that privilege, that invitation ought to be limited to people who are members of the church or well-known to the church. Some of you know why that is relevant even to say because you've been in church where uh, you had a visit from the traveling prophet, the roving prophet who goes around and he's pretty sure he's got something all the other churches need to hear. And that may or may not be true. But I'm just saying if he wants us to hear it here, he ought to stay a while. Right? you, don't, don't come on one Sunday and expect everybody to listen to you and say, "Oh, thank you, brother, for coming and blessing us." It ought to be limited to the. In other words, there, there would be some knowledge of the character of an individual, of the trustworthiness of an individual, if they're just a known entity to the church. Um, I uh, Early on here, um, uh, Jim Glasgow I had shared with me, there was a, a saying Horace Hilton had back you know, decades ago in this regard, and it was something like, uh, worship with us before you prophesy to us. That's a, that's a good principle, isn't it? To anybody, hey, Jesus, come be among us before you prophesy to us. That's kind of the idea. The, one of the ways that this could just, could just be handled um, in a discerning sort of way is if there's uh, elders or pastors that sort of screen that um, word before it's shared and limited to those who are known by the church. You know the thing with, with all of these. I, I found myself last week, and I, and I do again. You're qualifying at every turn because one of the uh, one of the sort of caveats here is don't quench the Holy Spirit. Even last week, when we hear all the reasons why tongues is not a gift that's best exercised in a public assembly, but he says, but don't forbid it. It's just it's hard to be absolutist um, about putting parameters around the people of God, because you can't put the same parameters around the Holy Spirit. And so it's a matter of still leaving some elasticity for him to work as he will. Um, The final thing I wanted to uh, offer on this point, the exercise of prophecy, is that just a good, helpful, practical point of wisdom would be uh, was that Where I said spoken in a way where the word can be evaluated. And so, a, a word of prophecy is probably best introduced with language that invites people to evaluate it. It invites people to test or discern. So, for example, rather than say, thus saith the Lord, um, someone might uh, state that in terms like, I think perhaps the Lord may be saved. Um, or a thought just dropped into my heart while we, were, while we were worshiping. This thought just dropped into my heart and I sense it may be from the Lord. Uh, while we were praying, I saw a picture in my mind. I believe I'm supposed to share it. See, in, in any of those kinds of uh, phrases communicate, I, I believe this is, I've got a word from the Lord. But I'm just also acknowledging, you don't have to believe that. <laughs> and part of your responsibility is to test it and discern whether that is true. And that, the language itself can just be helpful in that process where it's not, it doesn't come across with all the force of authority as if it's a word, an infallible word from the, from the Lord that should now be written in the back of your Bible. That, just, that is, I think, just a helpful, practical sort of way of, of exercising this gift in a way that just as it's delivered, it invites people to test it. Uh, in fact, I would mention, um, I thought of this week, my, uh, I, I've shared before my just testimony of my calling here and how I ended up at Myrtle Grove. I'll give you the real short version of this this morning, but I came in 2008 at Myrtle Grove Christian School, but that journey actually began five years earlier through a, a meeting I scheduled with my predecessor here, David Wolfe. Um, I saw David over the weekend, but anyway, um, I I'd interviewed him as part of a class I was taking, and um, there was a real you know, connection there between us and with the school or whatever, but anyway, at the end of the meeting, he said, um, I don't know if this is a word from the Lord or if this is just me talking. But I believe the day is going to come where God's going to lead me away from here. And you may be the guy who he would call in to replace me. Now that really, my spirit bore witness to that. There was something in me that that, that just resonated. Um, and, And here I am. That's the short version. Uh, My journey even to the pulpit today began with a prophetic word, couched in terms of, I don't know if this is the Lord or if this is just me talking. He believed it was a word from the Lord, you understand? But he said that in a way uh, where it just allowed me to discern that myself and um, acknowledged that that that's appropriate for the for the word to be tested, and so anyway, that's that's just a testimony of that, and another example of how that is a good exercise. There's not uh, again, I'm not really speaking in absolute terms. Even the prophecy I just read from Acts 20, uh, Agabus said, "Thus says the Holy Spirit." You know, but um, but but it's just that that language may be helpful in really, um. Sort of breaking down some walls, even or barriers, to people being open to receiving that, so that there is a sense of both liberty in exercising the gift, but safety in exercising the gift. Okay, enough of that. Number three, the, on the issue of the evaluation of prophecy, I used evaluation to say it. See, uses the word in First Thessalonians five uh, to test. Everything and hold fast to what is good. And here in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. So uh, there, there needs to be again a process for testing or weighing. If somebody would bring to the congregation a spontaneous a thought that that God has brought spontaneously to mind, there wanting to be spoken to the congregation, there needs to be a way of evaluating that. And one of the implications of that is that however that happens procedurally, the elders need to exercise oversight. The, the, the elders, uh, it's not just uh, something that falls on the pastor or it's not just something that, that is sort of democratic uh, entirely in the, in the way the congregation would do that, but the, the elders exercise oversight over that. Um, again, that might be including that elders are sort of front line and on the scene even as that transpires. But it also may mean that if a word is shared publicly in the congregation, that part of the uh, sort of action plan all the time is for elders to get together and discern, do we believe that was a word from the Lord? Do we want to affirm to the congregation the validity and the strength of that word. Again, how exactly that happens might vary, but elders need to exercise oversight. Um, and then I would say just more generally, uh, you know, the, a question would be, how do we determine when it says test everything, how do we do that? Right, how do you determine if a word is truly from the Holy Spirit? Now I offer here four questions To help with discernment. These come from Brad Long, who's the head of uh, an organization called PRMI, Presbyterian Reformed Ministries International, a charismatic Presbyterian and Reformed organization. He wrote a book called Growing the Church in the Power of the Holy Spirit, so uh, this shows up in that book as well. But here are four questions that are actually really helpful. They actually even print some bookmarks that you can put in your Bible. if that's uh, helpful as a way to be reminded of the questions. But when somebody brings a word or a report of a vision or whatever that may be that they say is from the Holy Spirit, four questions. Number one, does it give glory to Jesus Christ? Number two, is it consistent? With the Scripture, the the reason it matters if it brings glory to Jesus Christ is because in John 14 and 16 where we began this series, Jesus said that's what the Holy Spirit will do. That I will send him, he's another helper, and he will glorify me. And so does the word glorify Jesus? And is it consistent with the Scripture? Remember, uh, that was probably message number two. The Holy Spirit... Um, is the spirit of truth. He's already spoken. a whole Bible's worth of words. And so he he who cannot lie, cannot contradict himself, is the word that somebody brings and says is from the Holy Spirit. Does it line up with the Scriptures? Number three, do other born-again and Spirit-filled believers have a confirming witness? This would be, again, one of the ways that this could actually be worked out is you have elders and or just a team of other prayer leaders, ministry leaders of whatever sort, but who, when a word is shared publicly, that they get together to discuss and discern. We believe that's a timely word for our congregation. But do other believers bear witness to that? Do they have a confirming witness? because some may say that just there's something troubling about that that doesn't that doesn't strike me as really consistent with the heart of God uh, there might be something that, that's uneasy in the spirits of other spirit-filled believers number 4 is there confirmation in objectively verifiable events so if somebody for example predicts that something's going to happen, did it actually happen? <laughs> uh, if somebody says, you've been healed, um, is there any objective verification of that? I mean, there are ways, and, 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 and somebody who really is, I think, uh, wise and responsible in saying such things would, would encourage you, they would probably number one, be a little bit measured in the way they said that, but also encourage you to go to your doctor for you know confirmation or or what have you. Uh, but but however that might look, is there is there confirmation in an objectively verifiable event to the extent that it can be verified? It depends on the nature of that word. But those are those are four really helpful questions in discerning whether uh, something is from the Holy Spirit, does it give glory to Jesus Christ? Is it consistent with the Scripture? Do other born again and Spirit filled believers have a confirming witness? And is there confirmation in objectively verifiable events? Um, I am. I, I said I kind of made a footnote for myself here, which I'm I'm not going to unpack uh, this morning. I'll put that in a newsletter article this week that deals with a couple of these verses we didn't read this morning, but just in the interest of time and sort of keeping our ourselves focused. Uh, you know, we even here, in a, on a very practical level, will have to give some thought in prayer among our elders and otherwise, how we sort of uh, would walk forward and just sort of make room for you know, the exercise of spiritual gifts in the appropriate settings. There are some ways in which, as I already sort of, Um, forecast, if you will, small groups and and even coming up our our table groups are a a good opportunity for people to just minister to one another. And in ministering to one another, um, there may be people who discover gifts they didn't know they had. They may find God empowering ministry because they're just engaging in ministry. There's, there's a lot to be said for that sort of ministry and exercise of gifts in smaller group settings. There's a downside to that too because uh, you, know, you can get people who go rogue in small groups. I hope our discernment process will have some sort of plan B for people who go rogue in small groups. I mean, you know, that, that, we, that, we, that we aren't necessarily shocked by such things, but we don't allow them to continue Rogan. Um, but, but, but again, it just it has its challenges, it has its pluses, it has its minuses. But the other thing I was just going to mention is that at our evening service on October 2nd, uh, what I intend to do is just create some time in the service as, as sort of a, a step in this direction, but create some time in the service for people just to share a word of edification, encouragement or comfort now that may be a scripture that comes to mind. it may be an encouraging word that somebody offered them some time that they share with somebody else or um, or something that they read that was particularly helpful that they share. but the point is this that um, if we if we begin by number one, sort of creating some space, if you will, time and space for that sort of contribution to take place in a public assembly. And if we, if we start out by pointing it in the right direction, that is encouraging, edifying, comforting. And we know it doesn't have to be a spontaneous word from the Lord for it to be edifying and comforting and uh, encouraging, right? There are lots of words right from the Scriptures that could be. But again, what wouldn't surprise me at all is that if you begin to walk in that direction and you cultivate uh, that sort of uh, environment, that, that, that what'll, what very well may ha- happen in the process of that is that God does just drop a word in the heart of somebody in the middle of a service that then is appropriate to share. But see, if you start out just with the intention to encourage and edify and comfort, wherever that may come from, and it doesn't have to be forced, there doesn't have to be anything that fits in that uh, slot in the the service, you understand? It's not a matter of trying to sort of contrive something, but just making room for the Holy Spirit to operate there, uh, making room in our own hearts to to incline our hearts toward um, the the good of other people that we come together with the interest of others in mind and a a consideration about how can I minister to someone else? Do I have something comforting or encouraging or edifying to say? And that may begin to create the climate in which um, the Holy Spirit can just use us however he will. And that's been one of the themes I've tried to uh, inject throughout this series is that we, we walk with an openness to Holy Spirit, earnestly desiring spiritual gifts, not quenching the Spirit, but also regulated in the ways the Bible regulates the operation of those gifts and allows Him to be absolutely sovereign over how, when, and to whom those gifts are distributed and exercised. That we don't impose any expectation of what needs to happen in every single time, every single service where we gather. But we're just open to letting Him do what He will do. For His glory, for our good as always. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you so much for all that you've revealed in the scriptures about the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for just how enriching this series has been, and just the uh, the whole world of blessing opened up to us as we open ourselves to all the work that the Holy Spirit would want to do in our lives personally and corporately. Lord, we confess, profess our belief, Lord, that you are real, that you're a living God, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God, we just want to encounter you and know you in very real ways. We invite you to do so now and in the months and years to come. And Lord, we surrender to the way that you want to do that. God, would you most of all uh, impress on the hearts of each one of us that we are yours fashioned according to your design for your purposes and for your glory. Would you make it our delight to glorify you in all that we are and in all that we are not. In Jesus' name, amen.